of Ephesians chapter 4, we will be reading verses 1 through 6. And if you didn't bring your Bible, bring it next week, but you can look at the monitors around you for now. So, God's Word says for us today, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I think of a year prior to this year that I've been so excited as we began in January looking at our vision. We've gotten together this past month or two and reworked the vision statement for Good News. And just a reminder, we seek to be a diverse family of believers, reconciled by God, impacting the lives of people in Humboldt Park and Logan Square communities and beyond through the gospel of Jesus Christ, accomplished as we see every person transformed by the gospel, every person connected to the body, every person discipled, every person on a mission. We're reminded in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, again, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, that we're to live life in such a way as to be worthy of the calling of Christ in our lives. We're to preserve the unity of the body as we grow together into maturity. In the midst of various differences, we're to live a life that reflects Christ. A few months ago, I was interacting with Benny Ortiz, who is has uh, oversight of facilities, and he and I work together every day and see each other every day. And he came to me one day, and he was laughing. And he said, Ralph, he named the men. He says, whenever you say brother, they laugh because you're white and I'm Puerto Rican. You think about it, we, the body of Christ, we know that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. But to the world, it seems strange that a white man would say to a Puerto Rican brother, here I am, a white guy, raised in Alabama, on a farm, no less. I had nothing in common growing up with Benny. I didn't see gangs. My brothers and I could go on our back 80 acres, we could swim in the creek, we could chase horses and cattle, we could play football or baseball, we could even camp out at night without a tent and never see a soul. See, Benny and I grew up very differently, but because of Jesus Christ, we are brothers. Brothers in a stronger sense than my brothers physically. The body of Christ is made up of different people with different backgrounds coming together to worship and to serve God. But sometimes our experiences and our backgrounds can 
It will require a little of effort to understand. I remember coming here as a white person. I've learned that Hispanics growing up, like in those years, would get their hands spanked if they used Spanish language. And on the other side, I still remember a good friend of mine today who said, Ralph, when I heard you were coming from Alabama, I pictured you wearing overalls. I don't think I've ever worn a pair of overalls. I don't think I'll ever wear a pair of overalls. But you see, as we come together with a diverse group of people, we have misunderstandings. We're different. We're different. And so that requires effort on our end. I've lived here in Chicago for 33 years, and I've grown fond of flan. But I've grown even more fond of the people in Humboldt Park and Logan Square, whether they're Puerto Rican, whether they're Mexican-American, whether they're Norwegian-American, whether they're African-American. God has given me a love for the people here. The community is changing again. And as we see new people coming in to Humboldt Park and Logan Square, we need to reach out. This means reaching out to people that we may not feel too comfortable with. It means we've got to ask questions about them, maybe. Well, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, reminds us of our great calling to be a part of Christ's church that will transform the world. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In verses 1 through C, through 3, we see our call for unity in verse in several verses in chapter 1, we see God's call on us as believers. Verse 4 of chapter 1 says, He chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy. And verse 5 says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons. In verse 7, He says, We have redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sin, which He's lavished on us. And verse 13 says that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Which guarantees our inheritance. And in here, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, we're to walk worthy of that calling. God's call on our lives is not just a private relationship with Him, but it's a life in a community. It's a life in the church with other people. Verse 1 communicates there's a necessity of having right attitudes in the midst of life as we interact with people. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The body of Christ, again, is made up of believers with very diverse backgrounds. We may look different. We may sound different. We may have different backgrounds and different views, but we need each other. 
We need each other. It's easy to think that our church should look just like us. The differences require that extra effort to understand. Paul faced this as he looked at the church in Ephesus. He knew that in that church there'd be people from different backgrounds, different personalities, different priorities. And yes, the biggest difference would have been the Jew and the Gentile, so separated in cultures and mindsets. But beyond that, there were people from Rome and from Greece and from Syria and from that whole Mediterranean world of the first century. How does Paul get these people to interact together? He reminds them of some basics, basic truths. This diverse group of people will impact the lives of those around them as they were humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. Well, first, humility isn't being uncertain or having doubt. It's that demeanor that says, I am not the center. The truth is the center, and I will submit to the truth of God's Word. I am not the king. God is. In other words, it's not about me. It's about how God wants to use my gifts. A few things are more destructive in the community life than pride and arrogance. First Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes, opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Christ says, I am gentle and humble. And yet the world around us exalts in pride. And it looks down on humility as being a weakness. Sometimes almost, I think, despised. But God calls us to be humble. What does that look like in community? It's realizing that I don't have to be in the spotlight. It's realizing that I don't have to be in control. I don't have to be the boss. I don't have to be the center of attention. One can have wonderful gifts from the Lord, and yet we can be hardy or proud. And a hard attitude shows that. I was just talking with with uh, a mosaic Thursday night, and someone had gone to pray, pray Chicago, which is a citywide uh, movement where people are coming together from all ethnic groups praying. They mentioned in passing that Dr. Futer, who used to be at Moody, He's the one who did the research, put together a, a, a booklet for prayer um, for this movement. He was barely up front. But he gave the time to the pastors. You see, he stepped back. But he didn't have to be the center of attention. It was better that he not. We, too, need to remember it's not about us. Well, secondly, humility always produces gentleness. And gentleness in, uh, implies mild-manneredness, self-control. It's the opposite of being vindictive or getting vengeance. It has nothing to do with weakness. It's used for wild horses. I know you guys didn't grow up on a farm, but we used to break horses, train horses in the area. And Chris's dad did that also. Yeah. And the thing about a horse, once they're broken and trained, 
They're still strong. They still have all that power. They can still run fast. You see, they run fast and they go where the master wants them to. Gentleness is power under control. A third attitude we need as we interact with our community of believers is patience. It's an outgrowth of humility and gentleness. It means long-suffering. A patient person endures negative situations and circumstances and never gives up, never gives in. And fourth attitude we need is to bear with one another putting up with one another, enduring one another. The ultimate result of all these attitudes is that the unity of the Spirit is preserved. God formed the church and placed His Holy Spirit within us and among us. And yet, we know that the unity of the Spirit can be broken and ruined with wrong attitudes. Paul here is not speaking about a unity at any price for fundamental truths of the gospel or the word of God or discarded. He makes seven claims. And he uses the word one each time in which believers are reminded of the fundamentals of faith. And we see the Trinity, if you look at it, you see the Trinity is a seven appeared with Spirit, Son, and Father. So our basis for our unity is in verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and the Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope. We share an identity in Christ. We share the Spirit of God. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. As believers, we share the same testimony. We testify that Jesus Christ is the Lord and is through our faith in Him that we have salvation. And it's through our baptism that we acknowledge that our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. And finally, in verse 6, it says that there's one God and Father of all. We share the same family. We share the same family because we have the same Father. Despite all the differences that we might have, even differences as great as the Jews and the Gentiles back then, we're the same family because we share the same Father. Ephesians 2, 19 says that we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we're members of the household of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. I think I shared with you before, when I first came here as a summer missionary from the farms in Alabama, and I was so aware of my whiteness, 
as I walk down the streets. But see, I don't think about that anymore. Unless someone mentions it. Because see, we're one. Christ removes all of these differences, or at least removes those barriers as we talk, as we interact. <clears throat> I read recently where during the Cold War that South Koreans were taught, and vice versa, North Koreans, to hate each other in the midst of the war. But now that the war is over, on each side where there are believers, they're learning, they're teaching each other to love one another. And what's great is to read the stories of how South Koreans, who have the scriptures and who have the money and who have food, they're risking their lives to go through the, the border with China and North Korea to share spiritual food and to share physical food. You see, our faith in Jesus Christ knocks down, tears down all kind of walls. He makes us one in Christ Jesus. The call for unity is not just a justification for anything goes or nothing really matters. I can't help but think at times the ecumenical movement where they just kind of brushed aside Scripture and God's Word and theology. No, we cannot do that. We must unite ourselves with those who hold forth the Word of God. In our membership classes, as we look at our statement of faith, we stress that there are essential things that we must believe to be a member of Good News Bible Church. But the deity of Jesus Christ, or the Trinity, or salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone, the inerrancy of the Word, I could go on. Well, there are some things some non-essentials, that we have liberty to believe different things. We believe, as a, as a church, in baptism by immersion. But we know that there are believers who sprinkle, and that's okay. We believe in the plurality of elders. There's more than one elder, but some churches believe in just one, the pastor. They're going down the line, but you see the point. There's some things that... They're not essential that we believe exactly the same thing. But in everything that we do, as far as Scripture, as we interact with those with some differences, we try to show charity, try to show love. In the midst of life with our differences and backgrounds, we remember the basis for our unity. We have the same identity. We have the same testimony of faith in Christ. We have the same Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, he says, not only does he want us to know that we have unity through our faith, he also wants us to know that we're different. Not different in ethnic background, but different because of gifts given to us. And we see the unity in diversity in verses 7 through 14. Verse 7 through 10, we read, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measures of Christ's gift. And therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he held a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended 
into the lower regions to the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So how are we different again? We have different gifts. Verse 11 and 12, we see a list primarily of, of, of leadership here. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints to do the work of ministry for the equipping, the building up of the body of Christ. God has gifted leaders in the church in different ways, just as he has gifted the body of Christ here. And we need to understand that it's good that we have different gifts because God made us that way. Too often we, we think that we need to be the same, to have the same gifts. How do we deal with these differences? In verse 7, Paul says that we should recognize that these gifts come from Christ and his authority. Verse 7 says, Grace was given to each of us, each one of us, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Beyond our different personalities and our different abilities, beyond our different experiences in life, Christ has given each of us, if we know him as Savior, he's given us at least one gift not more. He's done it according to his authority and his purpose for your life and for my life. No one has all the necessary gifts. The Holy Spirit has given us gifts according to Christ's authority. And the good thing is, is we have complementary gifts. The bad thing is, is our differences can sometimes rub against us in different ways. As I think of elders and the different gifts, I'm so thankful I would never want to be in a church that believed in one elder. As we gather together as elders, we gather with men who have different perspectives on life. There have been occasions where we just, in the midst of working through issues, we stopped. We stopped and pray. We say, Father, direct us. Direct us. I would hate to have a group of six or seven men who have the very same gifts. But we wouldn't have all the different perspectives. God has gifted the leadership as he's gifted the church with different gifts because he has different purposes for us. Speaking of Jesus, in verses 8 through 10, we're told that because of Christ's incarnation when he descended to the earth from heaven that he defeated our foes he defeated Satan he defeated, he defeated sin he defeated death and Paul here he, he borrows the imagery of Psalm 68 he, he portrays Jesus Christ as a victorious king and back in those days the king who won would come through and they would show all the captives that they had. Here, Paul depicts Christ with his captives in a victory parade to show that Christ has defeated our spiritual enemies. He's earned the right to distribute the gifts to us as he sees best. Of course, the ascension there is reference to his resurrection. But the key here is that Christ has dominion over all things all people. 
his authority to distribute the spiritual gifts to whom he wishes in the proportion he wishes. Since he knows best, we should trust him. Sometimes it's easy for us to look down on the gifts of others or to look down on our own gifts. But the different gifts are intended for Christ's purposes. Christ doesn't want us to use our gifts on ourselves. He doesn't want our gifts to lay dormant. He wants us to use our gifts to build up the body of Christ as we serve each other. Well, what will Christ's purpose for giving gifts? Verses 13 and 14, he says, or very clearly says, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the statue of fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes Christ gave the gifts especially for the leadership but for all of us Build the unity of the church. We're to be unified in our faith. We're to be unified in our doctrine, in our theology. And then he gave the gifts that the church might mature, it might grow, it might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But what attitude do we need to have to look at our spiritual gifts in the future? First is we need to remember again that the Lord Jesus Christ gave our gifts based on his intention for us. And secondly, we're not to look down on the gifts of other people. It's because of the diversity that we have richness. We have so much more because of the differences. And third, we're not to look down on our own gifts. If we continually think that we need to be someone other than how God created us, will never find satisfaction in life. There's nothing more fulfilling, nothing more joyful than being that tool, that instrument used by God as we express the gifts that he has given us. I think sometimes we, we don't understand that we're obligated. We're obligated to use the gifts for the building up of the church. Maybe sometimes we don't want to use our gifts because it requires sacrifice. I don't know. But since God has gifted each of us as believers, we need to be asking ourselves at least two questions. First one for you. Am I doing what God has made me to do? That's that's a good one. Think about it. Am I doing what God has made me to do? Or am I neglecting my gift? You see, God created you so very specifically, a certain way. I still remember growing up with my twin brother. We were night and day. Everybody compared us. We grew apart. We don't need to be the same. We need to be the person... God made us to be. Second question, do I delight to be what God has called me to be? Or do I look down on my gifting? 
Do I delight in being whom God has made me to be? Or do I look down on my gifting? As I was studying this, I was reminded of the movie Mr. Holland's Opus. So I had some of my family watch it with me again. It's a movie, if you remember, about a dedicated musician who, who longed to be this uh, famous composer. And throughout the movie, he was always working on this magnificent piece. You see, he didn't have the gifts to be a composer, but he had the gifts to impact the high school in which he took a job he thought initially just to get started. He impacted lives, many, many, many lives. Two examples. One was a little red-headed girl with pigtails. Do you remember that? She struggled with playing the clarinet. She, I, I thought about myself. This girl had no, no gifting musically. But he worked with her. Then there was this young man. I thought about myself with him, too. He was a football player who could not keep rhythm. But he needed a band credit to be able to play football. Mr. Holland worked with these people. As the movie concludes, Mr. Holland is fighting budget cuts. The principal that he had loved to work with, had supported him, had moved on and retired, and this new guy was in place, and it seemed like he was against him, but he wasn't. Anyway, Mr. Holland fought to keep the music program, but he lost. And he retired. And toward the end, as he gathered all his stuff together from his desk, his shoulders kind of slumped over, walking down the hall, and he heard some noise in the auditorium. He and his son and his wife walked into a packed auditorium of students and alumni thundering an ovation, calling out his name. And that little girl with the pigtails, the little redheaded girl with the pigtails, she was now the governor of the state. She addresses him. Mr. Holland, look around you. Look around you. We are your great opus. We are the music of your life. Each of us is the music, the great opus, if you will, of those who have used their gifts in our lives. I pray that we will see, know the joy, fulfillment, as we use our gifts to minister to those around us. We may never become famous, but when we use our gifts to encourage others in Christ, there's no greater joy. There's no greater joy than seeing a couple's marriage healed. There's no greater joy than seeing our family supported as they go through an extended illness. I promise you. 
There's no greater joy than seeing a young person come to Christ from a Muslim background as we support pastor in Liberia. There's no greater joy than seeing the Word of God preached boldly. There's no greater joy than seeing a family reached through the outreach of Chase School as we dream as we do that. There's no greater joy than seeing men come to Christ at the mission home as we build relationships. All this is a church being the church. Together we're impacting the community around us and beyond us. The church is God's great opus. We're his great composition. We're his creation. It's only when we serve together using the gifts we've been given that we're able to transform the communities around us. While we are the same in some ways and while we differ in other ways in order to fulfill Christ's purposes, we must remember that we're also all dependent. We're all dependent. Verses 15 and 16, we see this. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, which is what is which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're dependent. We're dependent first on Christ, who is the head. Christ says in John 15, 5, that I am the vine, and you are the branches. And apart from me, you can do nothing. It's easy for us to work so hard to provide for our families that we neglect to pray. It's easy to be so concerned we do well with exams that we forsake biblical integrity. It's easy to become so accustomed to using the gifts that God has given us that we stop depending on the Lord who gave us the gifts. It's easy for me and for you to hit the road with a thousand things on our mind that we've got to do, this checklist get in all this, that we need Christ. But secondly, we also need each other. Verse 16, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up. Get this now, as each part does its work. The body works as each part does its work. We have a deep obligation to each other. Everyone must use his or her gifts. We all must do our part. But the body of Christ is to work. This runs against the grain of Western culture and its focus on personal independence. And it runs against much of evangelicalism with its focus on a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. 
we must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is very, very important. That's the starting point. But as important as a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, biblical Christianity never teaches that faith is just about Jesus and me. Never. Never. We're part of the body of Christ. His Spirit lives within us and among us. And we are an expression of Christ's love to others and they to us. As we think of the church, I want to warn us of of some wrong mindsets. Mindsets such as we don't need to accept certain kind of people in the body. We do. As the community changes, we need to be reaching out. Women that understand who they are, but we reach out. Let's don't believe or act as though everyone has to be like us. Or believe that we're adequate to do what we need without the Spirit of God. Or believe that others have the gifts that Christ needs for good news. And so therefore, I don't need to do anything. See, those are lies. Lies from Satan. And too often we buy into them, guys. Too often. I still remember, as a little boy growing up in Alabama, being visited by two ladies, Mrs. Cogel, and we called her Aunt Jane very affectionately, mother and daughter. They were always visiting people. I wasn't a part of their church. My family wasn't a part, but they came by. Aunt Jane would pick us up to go to vacation Bible school most every summer unless someone else did. I remember sitting in her vacation Bible school classes, and where's Aaron? Back then, Aaron, they didn't have DVDs. They had flannel graphs. I can still remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Aunt Jane was a good teacher. Aunt Jane cared. Mrs. Kogel and Aunt Jane would occasionally visit my home So at 25 years of age, when I knew I needed to make a decision spiritually, I knew where to go. I had a church that I attended pretty regularly growing up, but I didn't go there. So I knew, I knew, I knew that Aunt Jane and her sister Annalie and their mom, Mrs. Kogel, and Pastor Young and a host of others there, I knew they loved me. I knew they cared, so I went to them, and I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And after trusting Christ, Mrs. Kogel came to my house with a nice leather-bound Bible, and she said, Ralph, you're going to need this. You're going to need this. Aunt Jane and Mrs. Kogel faithfully prayed for me. They checked on me. No one that had come out of drugs and alcohol. And as I went off to Bible college and seminary, somehow my tuition was always paid. They never told me. But Pastor Young told me. 
when I decided to come to Chicago to work with Inner City Impact full-time, Pastor Young said, uh, got a car for you. Miss Coble didn't tell me, but she paid for me a little Toyota to sale, brand new. Aunt Jane was a faithful supporter when Chris and I were missionaries at the Inner City Impact for almost eight years. And then when we came on staff with Good News for at least five years, she provided support. But more than that, she prayed for us. There were times when she would write lengthy letters, monthly. She cared. She cared. And that's only just a little bit of what they had done. They did it for as many others, too. You know, I have no doubt that I'm an example of Ephesians 4, 16. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Because Mrs. Kogel and Aunt Jane and a host of other ladies there at Central Baptist, because they prayed faithfully for me for years, I came to Christ. Because they prayed for me, showed love, they reached out to me. I knew what it was. It was their prayers that supported me as I sought to live for Christ, as I struggled with leaving the drugs and alcohol behind. It was their prayers that enabled me to continue my walk. It was their giving and their caring and their prayers that supported us for 10 to 15 years. I look around and I see a lot of people that God is calling us to be a Mr. Kogel or a Mrs. Kogel. Aunt Jane or Uncle Joe. He's calling us. He's gifted us. Remember, He chose you for the foundation of the world. He predestined you. He saved you. He gave the Spirit who lives within you. You're not a mistake. You're his creation. He's called you. He's called me to minister. He calls to be faithful. He wants us to be involved in each other's lives. He wants us to be reaching out. My question for you is, how does God want to use you to impact the lives of those around you. Because he called you. He didn't call you just to sit in a seat. He called you and he gave you a gift to encourage. Think about the movie Mr. Holland's Opus. He had no idea that this little red-headed girl who couldn't play the clarinet would one day be the governor. And we don't know what God has in store for those around us as we minister, as we care for those around us. 
He's called us together. The building up of the body. Equipping us to do the work of the ministry. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that we're not accidents here. We thank you, Father, that eternity passed. Father, that you called us, 